day to you. Seven billion people in the world, seven continents, Antarctica, Australia, Europe, Africa, Asia, North America, South America. We're back again. It is Atlanta Discourse. My name still remains Adebalogu. I am your host, and some of you call me the moderator. Doesn't matter, they all work out. So today we're going to discuss something that's also very critical to the black man's largest country. I'm talking in terms of population, that is Nigeria. Nigeria is the largest concentration, has the largest concentration of black people in the whole world. Some will say one out of every four sub-Saharan African is a Nigerian. Also, there are statistics that can back it up that one out of every six black people in the world is Nigeria. So today we're talking about the Nigerian judiciary. There is no other person than Professor Aslem Chidi Odinkalu, who is our guest today that will help us shed light into all the nagging issues that need clarity on it. Prof, welcome to Atlanta Discussor. Hey, I did a good uh, day over there. How are you? I hope you're good and welcome to 2024. <laughs> Thank you very much, Prof. Thank you very much, Prof. Prof is all new. You all know, I mean, he practices law and human rights at the Fletcher School. He currently chairs the True Justice and Peace Commission, which we're all aware, especially those from the southeastern part of Nigeria. Yeah, he has previously chaired the Nigeria Human Rights Commission also. He's done a lot of work on human rights. He's an activist, no doubt. He also served on the panel that uh, of eminent person that uh, negotiated the return of Gambia back to the Commonwealth, among so many other things. But we're here to go for the juggler in Atlanta discuss like we always do. So let's kick the round, round kick the ground running, cut the chase. State of the Nigerian judiciary, there's no reason to be diplomatic about it. It's really in a pathetic state. But before we go into the issues, that are really pertinent today. Can you, for our viewers, break down the scratters and levels of how the court works in Nigeria? For example, people say state high court, customary court, federal high court, appeal court. Can you tell us how it works, level of seniority, and so on? So you have the floor, Prof. Thank you. It's, uh, I hope it's not too complex. But first of all, um, <laughs> to begin with, in any society, in any country, the state actually has a monopoly of legitimate dispute resolution. That's where it begins, right? Now, it can distribute that monopoly however it wishes. So in our country, for instance, that dis that monopoly of legitimate dispute resolution, the state is actually a, comprised of uh, essentially three monopolies. One is uh, a monopoly of legitimate dispute resolution. The second is a monopoly of legitimate deployment of violence. And the third is a monopoly of uh, the prerogative of fiscal governance, taxation. Right? Now, if you take the first, which is legitimate dispute resolution, because when that does not work, then the second monopoly that I talked about, which is the monopoly of legitimate violence, the deployment of violence becomes endangered because everybody then resorts to um, self-help. And the third, fiscal uh, governance then becomes challenged because anyone who can deploy violence in their neighborhood begins to tax people over it, which is how Boko Haram is taxing people uh, in parts and vigilantes are taxing people in different parts of Nigeria. So if you look at the legitimate dispute resolution, it begins from the village level. So the local chiefs actually can, uh, who are uh, themselves certificated by the state, can, can resolve disputes. And 
if that fails or if you're aggrieved with that, you go into the formal court system, magistrates' courts, customary courts, and magistrates' courts, customary courts dealing with issues concerning customs, uh, magistrates' courts or area courts or district courts, as the case may be, depending on where you come from. So district courts and area courts are in the north of Nigeria, and you've got magistrates' courts and um, customary courts in the southern parts of Nigeria. Now, I, uh, after that, you've got the high court. The high court is a court of a limited jurisdiction. It can deal with any matter at all unlike the magistrate's courts or customary courts, which are courts of limited jurisdiction. The high court is a court of, it's called a superior court of record, uh, uh, because uh, unlike the magistrate's courts and the customary courts, which are not superior courts of record. Um, that, for instance, means that uh, anything in the record of the court, uh, whenever in dispute, the record of the court governs, which was why it was such an issue that some people were saying uh, if there is a conflict between what the court says orally and what is written in, in the Kano Court of Appeal decision, for instance, on the governorship election, then the, uh, what is said orally governs. Uh, first of all, there should be no conflict over what the court says orally and what is in its records, right? Um, yep. But if there is a conflict by any means at all, then what is in its records will govern. Now, the, the high court is... Uh, of, on a coordinate level with the customary court of appeal and the Sharia court of appeal. But the customary court of appeal only deals with matters of customary law. And the Sharia court of appeal, which you find mostly in parts of Northern Nigeria and some parts of Western Nigeria, so for, in, you know, or the Southwest Nigeria, sorry, um, would deal with only issues of Islamic law, Islamic personal law not just Islamic law, but Islamic personal law. That's different from Islamic criminal law or hudud, right? So you then go from the those levels, that's the High Court, Customary Court of Appeal, Sharia Court of Appeal, or Federal High Court. Now, the Federal High Court is a different kind of court. It deals with only federal issues. And federal issues will be issues in the exclusive legislative list, the 64 thereabouts items in the exclusive legislative list, so it's 68 thereabouts. Now, and then you've got the National Industrial Court, which deals with only matters relating to labor issues, right? All of those five courts, appeals will go from there to the Court of Appeal, which is the second highest court in the country. And from the Court of Appeal, appeals then go to the Supreme Court. Now, the Court of Appeal is the only court in Nigeria that does not have any original jurisdiction. Original jurisdiction is if you want to file a, a case, you go to the, that court. Now, th the Court of Appeal only has jurisdiction over appeals from different court systems. The Supreme Court has jurisdiction over appeals um, uh, uh, from the Court of Appeal. It also has original jurisdiction over the uh, when there is a dispute between a state and the federal government or between two states or more. Yeah. And the Court of Appeal, having said that it does not have original jurisdiction, is also the place where cases begin for disputes on election, uh, presidential election petitions. But then that's not the Court of Appeal. It's actually 
a presidential election petition tribunal, which is comprised of justices of the Court of Appeal. So that, broadly speaking, is uh, the, how the court system is organized. Sorry, that may have been taken may have taken too long, and it's a it's a it's a little complex. Uh, no, it's okay. I mean, and it's clear because most people don't really know. I mean, I, to be honest, I don't know. I know the Supreme Court is the Supreme Court, but like you broke it down, the Sharia customary. I'm learning that too. But yeah, I've said that. You've said a lot, and like like I said when the program started, I don't know anybody that's written or said uh, uh, as much as you have on the situation in Nigerian judiciary, and you do it empirically with facts, statistics all the time. Now, on the recent uh, Supreme Court judgment vis-a-vis -vis Plateau State and reference to the cases that were clearly bungled by the uh, court, uh, court of Appeal, you know, you you emphatically said that Justice Dongba, Monica Dongba Mensa should, should resign. I mean, you you said, by God, she should, she should leave. And why, why did you say that? Why? Why you were very emphatic, and uh, I mean, we, you gave your reasons, which are clear also. But considering the fact that you know the other justices involved, should should she be, be, be the one to be all the blame because she's the president of the court of appeal? Yes, <laughs> you know, I'm, so I'm fairly clear about that. Uh, look, uh, first of all, the election yeah. petition system is governed by the president of the court of appeal. Yes, cool. but secondly. The appellate mechanisms, the appellate system of the election petition system is even more directly controlled by the president of the Court of Appeal. Okay. Now, and that, quite frankly, has been a scandal. Now, you see, and, and this is why I have gone on about this business of judge, senior judges appointing their children to become oh. judges. Now, Judges. You you have to unwind this thing a bit. The president, this president of the Court of Appeal was appointed in 2020. June, she was sworn in formally, June 11th, 2020. And at that time, Governor Lalong, who ran to be the senator for Plateau South, I believe, was and who was the director general of President Tinubu's presidential campaign our candidate Tinubu's presidential campaign, was the candidate also for the Senate seat in Plateau South on the platform of the APC. Uh, and of course, as the governor in 2020, um, you know, it was his place to take credit for having made a citizen of Plateau State or having been having had a citizen of Plateau State become the president of the Court of Appeal under his tenure the first, for the first time. Now, after that, in 2021, Barely one year after the elevation of the president of the Court of Appeal, her daughter became a judge of the Plateau State High Court, appointed by Governor Lalong. Mind you, both of them are from Shendam. All right? Both, the gov both Governor Lalong and the president of the Court of Appeal are from Shendam. The year after she gets becomes president of the Court of Appeal, the governor of the state appoints her daughter, the a judge of the Plateau State High Court, swears her in. And now, two years later, he is running to be senator, having finished his eight years in office. And he loses to Senator Bali and then goes on appeal. And 
uh, 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 sort of goes into the election petition process. And in the appeal, they constitute an appellate panel, which comprises a, one justice of the Court of Appeal, sworn in in 20, 2014, a second justice of the Court of Appeal, sworn in in 2021, who actually became a judge only in 2016, for the first time, and a third justice of the Court of Appeal, who only became a justice of the Court of Appeal in October 2023. So imagine this, you get appointed to become a justice of the Court of Appeal October 2023. And less than one month after you get sworn in, your first act is, is uh, um, striking down election petitions, uh, the, the seats. It's not just any seat. It is the seats of the two, sen two senators in the home state of the president of the Court of Appeal, including the senator representing her, who happens to be uh, the, the new person that they've brought in, just happens to be the person who appointed her daughter as a high court judge two years earlier. Right? And you are also uh, striking down the election of the state governor. And in all, they struck down 23 legislators, comprising wow. two senators, five members of the House of Representatives, and 16 members of the House of Assembly, handing the House of Assembly over to um, uh, Governor Lalong's party, the APC. And uh, then um, they proceed to strike down the governor's seat. Now, people will say, but how is this different from Bielsa State in 2019? Or how is it different from Zamfara State in 2019? Uh, and first of all, I've been on record about that. I don't agree with those decisions at all. I think those decisions were very wrong. Uh, because this notion that the Supreme Court set up in Zamfara State of wasted votes, you cannot be wasting votes in a democracy, all right? You cannot, as judges, claim that the votes of citizens in a democracy can be wasted. The way the law should work has to be to preserve votes, to find the best way to preserve the votes of the citizens, irrespective of whatever party they vote for, because that is the only currency a democracy should recognize. But there is also something else that was different in the Plateau State case, and having clarified this base point, and it is that actually the basis on which the Court of Appeal claimed that the PDP did not field or could not field any candidate was that the PDP had held a primary that disobeyed a court order. But actually, the same Court of Appeal on the 11th of February 2023 affirmed the PDP primaries in Tim Cook against INEC. They actually decided that the PDP primaries were lawful. And so, when the Court of Appeal panel was setting aside the decisions, uh, sorry, the tickets of these candidates, it was doing so not having considered Tim Cook's case, nor having expressly overruled it. And it was Court of Appeal sitting in Joss, exactly the same place that the same Court of Appeal sat, which had affirmed the PDP primaries in Tim Cook's case. That is one thing that is clearly different from these other cases. 
that the primary that the Court of Appeals said should not did not take place was actually, in terms of a decision of the Court of Appeal, lawful, specifically. So the only way in which to read what happened in Plato was that the president of the Court of Appeal, being aware of it, was happy with it. And you see, the judiciary is not an instrument of revolution, nor is the judiciary an instrument for throwing, for brewing Molotov cocktails or trying to disintegrate society. When you look at the history of Plateau State and the conflagration that has taken place there over three decades since 1994, and you look at the Contemporary history of Zamfara State, which is the other place where they sought to topple a governor again on very special jurisprudence. Or you look at the scandal that happened in Kano and the history of Kano since 1953. Oh. And think how a judiciary at the level of the Court of Appeal could actually encourage itself that this is the way to go to conflagrate the country. The only thing that strikes me is that these people are either completely irresponsible completely unfit or completely corrupt, either or a mix of these three. Either way, they don't belong to the judiciary. And in my view, therefore, the president of the Court of Appeal must go, deserves to go, deserves to be persuaded to go, and if she does not want to go, deserves to be fired. Thank you, Prof. So I, from the recent Supreme Court judgment, Palato, Abia, and all the states that is this same that the APC wanted to take by look or crook. Yeah, we just take uh, Iyango Koro said so many things about the Plateau State Judgment or we're talking about condemned it in all entirety and, and all that. But those Justice Iyango Koro and some of those Supreme Court judges, do they have a moral justification to castigate, say, the Court of Appeal, considering they have also given judgments that that are really not a tandem with what it should be. For example, in Enugu, the case of the governor, who clearly did not have an NYC certificate, is very clear. I mean, that's a no-brainer. It's supposed to have even been a slam dunk case. They upheld it. So if you think the president of the Court of Appeal should be sacked, should be sacked maybe by the NJC or the Supreme Court, whoever, the people above her are not, uh, they don't seem to carry the moral toga to. What do you think? I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, what I believe has happened in this case is a Supreme Court, under tremendous pressure from uh, and a moral burden from its dysfunctional jurisprudence, found a, a, an excuse to throw the Court of Appeal as a piece of red meat to oh. the population so as to relieve itself of some of the tension or distribute that some of that tension so that other people can begin to feel it the way they are feeling it. Uh, but in reality, it is the Supreme Court that has created the combustion that has led that's led the Court of Appeal to seek to justify itself in the way in the decision line of decision making that it took. It's also in the Supreme Court where you've had the worst examples of this practice of judicial insider dealing in appointments. Don't forget, it is the Chief Justice, for instance, who appointed his son to the Federal High Court, appointed his nephew to the Court of Appeal, uh, and actually his nephew wasn't just appointed to the Court of Appeal at the same time with one of the justices who sat in the uh, Plateau Court of Appeal panel. His nephew was also one of the justices in the scandalous Court of Appeal panel in Kano. All right? Oh. Um, now, 
um, uh, he also appointed his own brother, blood brother, as the auditor of the NJC. Uh, he nominated his sister as a commissioner in Oyo State, <laughs> in the current Oyo State cabinet. And one of his people also, uh, one of his relatives is a deputy chief registrar in the court of, in the Supreme Court. So uh, this whole business of judicial insider dealing resides in the Supreme Court. It's also the Supreme Court that originated the whole idea of wasted votes, which is what the, that, is la that line of jurisprudence, when you read the decisions, that the Court of Appeal relied to in the Plateau line of cases to talk about wasted votes. Um, I, I, and so it is impossible to preclude or exclude the Supreme Court from responsibility for what has happened and what has transpired. And I totally agree that if that you know, it's time to begin to talk about lustrating some of these people, precluding them from judicial office, because they have entirely brought the system into disrepute. There is nothing, absolutely nothing, that you cannot justify relying on a juris the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court. If you want to say thieving is legal, you can find dictum from the Supreme Court to justifying it. If you want to say that thuggery is legal, Dictum from the Supreme Court will justify it. You want to justify ballots stuffing. The Supreme Court gives you jurisprudence to justify it. Uh, Non-serialization of ballot papers, that goes back as far back as uh, Buhari and, uh, and Yaradua. Uh, you, you can go on. But the Supreme Court's electoral jurisprudence basically makes credible elections in Nigeria impossible, but also makes the judicial function an exercise in banditry and voodoo. Wow. Wow. So, but like the legislators in Plateau State, that's right, the state legislators, the senators that were removed by the appeal court, are there still grounds for them to go back to the Supreme Court, for example, when clearly the Supreme Court has stated that those uh, judgments had in law, you know, can they still go to the Supreme Court for, for you know, to seek suco? Uh, uh, to the Supreme Court, I doubt it, because uh, as a matter of law, the, um, the, uh, it is very clear that everything ends in the Court of Appeal. Um, so uh, that is what the Constitution says. So as a matter of law, they cannot go to the Supreme Court. Um, the final court is the Court of Appeal. So the question then is what happens? We clearly do have a crisis here of credibility um, for the system. You cannot have a situation in which the jurisprudence of the Court of Appeal has clearly been nullified by the Supreme Court. And yet you say the people in who, who suffered as a result of that cannot have any remedies. Uh, and the maxim lawyers will give you is ubius ibi remedium. Where there is a right or where there is an injury, there's got to be a remedy. Here there is clearly an injury, yeah. and you're saying the system cannot afford remedies. And my view, quite honestly, is basically that the system has got to invent remedies for this particular kind of case. And you could take it in one of two ways. One is that the president of the Court of Appeal, uh, an application can go to the president of, of the Court of Appeal for her to constitute a, a new special panel of the Court of Appeal, uh, probably a five-person panel, to review those cases judicially. That's one possibility. Uh, and the second possibility would be for the victims uh, or the Attorney General of Plateau State to sue at the Federal High Court and start a new procedure for 
remedies in this situation. There's got to be... Uh, the remedy, in my view, is not going to the NJC because that is only disciplining the judges, which I think should be done, by the way. The justices in the panel, as well as the president of the Court of Appeal, I believe that should be done. But no. Um, now, and why do I say this? As a matter of law and comparative jurisprudence, if you look at the comparative and international jurisprudence of the law of reparations and remedies, rep you invent reparations and remedies as you go along, Okay. Uh, and that goes far, as far back as Lusitania uh, arbitration, uh, uh, which is, uh, what, 107, 108 years old now, um, going back to the First World War. Judges historically have invented remedies as they've gone along. And, you know, in Nigeria, for instance, you had the case of Nasiru Bello, you know, against Oyo State, um, where a person um, was executed unlawfully. Uh, in Oyo State then, and the Supreme Court had to invent remedies in that case. Uh, it, you know, it was unknown to Nigerian law before then, and the Supreme Court invented remedies. Uh, and I do think in this, uh, and if you looked internationally, you would see that, um, for instance, in, in the exoneration cases in the United States where people, or indeed in the United Kingdom, where people uh, were unlawfully convicted, um, sentenced and when death penalty or in the states in the united states when death penalty where death penalty is applicable and we are executed uh you've had posthumous exonerations uh, right and nobody contemplated that when th those executions were happening in the 1950s or indeed more recently in the united states uh so it seems to me that the nigeria if we are going to transition to a more accountable democracy uh, or more accountable elective governance Nigeria has got to learn to invent remedies in this kind of situation, and we've got to make the effort to do so. Yeah, but the, the unfortunate thing now is that it doesn't look like that's going to happen because the NJC has currently structured uh, the, the the judicial system has currently structured looks to seemingly have a CEO, which is just the chief justice from the way we see it. And he has the power to do and undo, and is not willing to do all to perform all these reforms. So, having said all that, these uh, solutions that you preferred, you've given us to, are there precedents in law, you know, for example, that where these are taking place, where the Attorney General of a state, for example, we take the case to the back to state high court, where the President of Appeal Court we have to reconstitute maybe a panel of five. Has it happened before in Nigeria? Um. I, I I wouldn't say it has or has. I've I've, I've given you because I said we're in a, an extraordinary situation, right? Situation, but I, I've given I, I you agree. parallels in different other jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. uh, I also do know that uh, in you know there have been situations in which there were crises in the court of appeal, for instance, in relation to management of election petitions, where panels were disbanded uh, mm. midstream and new court of appeal panels or teams sent in to go and rescue the situation that has happened before in this situation. I, uh, what we do have is, uh, time has run out, uh, strictly speaking, time has run out on the appellate process, uh, and the election mm. petition process at the appellate at the court of appeal level. But it seems to me that a system where committed to redressing this uh, because we are no longer, this is no longer election petition that we are dealing with, but we are, at, we are dealing with something more important than election petition, which is the legitimacy and authority of judicial decision-making. If we do not act to rescue that, 
we risk a situation, and particularly in Plateau State, where you've got enough hardware to go around, right? And you've got enough problems already. You risk a situation in, of more generalized breakdown in the authority of the state. And that is really what we must not allow to happen. That puts a burden on judges in this particular case and, the, and on lawyers to invent remedies to preserve the authority of the state. I, I do think all of us have got to work constructively to invent solutions in this kind of situation. Because otherwise, you are going to waste the authority of the state for at least what is left of the authority of the state. And in doing that, endanger, create more generalized danger for breakdown in law and order uh, in a situation of chronic atrocities and chronic conflict. That is really the big problem we've got. Now, as to the question of, uh, yeah, the, the Chief Justice, in my view, in my view, is ethically challenged as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I don't say that lightly, but I'm willing to support everything I have said, <laughs> that particular opinion. Uh, but this is actually, to be perfectly honest with you, not something that the Chief Justice controls anymore. And it seems to me evident that the Supreme Court acted under duress from the people in this case. And I gave, you know, in our last encounter, I gave you the example of Ondo State in 1983. Here again, you see that in all of these three situations, that is Kano, Zamfara, and Plato, the people showed that they were willing to defend their votes. Uh, and if those verdicts were expropriated, people were willing to go to the streets and to make things difficult for those who did that. And therefore, the Supreme Court knew, or the judiciary knew, at the particular levels that they had to pull back from the path to perdition. And that is precisely the thing that this the, the judiciary also respects and responds to the will of the people, where that will is fully crystallized. Uh, and so I, I don't think we should just give up and say, oh, you know, uh, the, these, uh, you know these uh, judicial never do well, so are not going to listen to anything. The people have got a duty to insist. We have a duty not to give up because nothing in a democracy is given. Everything in a democracy is won through struggle and through effort. So interesting. You know, that was actually going to be my follow-up question, but I'll say ask it, you know, because at the last time, the last time I interviewed you, we spoke about weak state, collapse state, uh, failed state, uh, Nigeria as a focal point, the causes and all and indicators. And I remember very well when you compared Ondo and Anambra, with Anambra in the case of Sisi Ono uh, versus Jimu Obodo. Obodo, there was a people's choice, the NPM first in Ono, but the Anambra people did not show any sign of fighting that. Or like in Ondo, where the NPM leaked in Omoburiwo, and the people were very emphatic, violently rebellion. There was a yes. state of anarchy. Yeah. And it was clear that the people's choice had to be the governor. And a lot of people will say that that was one, maybe not really, one of the reasons why the military took over eventually because of the way the court cases at that time were mismanaged. So my question to you is this. Do the people's response, you've answered partly, but do the people's response carry a lot of weight? For example, if in the presidential case, for example, like that of the Supreme Court, which nothing, no call, no call point, no call cases, no call 
made by the by the other parties that were contesting the president made against the incumbent were really dealt with. There's so many issues vis-a-vis -vis the presidential election case which were not dealt with. So do you think if the people had shown the same sign like it was done in Undo, do you think there could have been a difference? Because it does look like from what you said, and I see also that the judges are listening to what <laughs> to listen to what the people are saying. No, the judges live in this Nigerian society, obviously, uh, mm. and the judges have got, they're not, you know, they're not living on planet Mars. But, mm. you know, when we look at, obviously, in a presidential election petition, it's difficult to muster the same kind of concentration of will. There's a problem of scale, mm. right? This, you mm. cannot, it's difficult to muster the same concentration of will, of public will, um, uh, the, unified and across the board, that you can at the state level partly because of the diversity of Nigeria. So in this case, of course, the person declared was someone from the Southwest. And if you're going to be mustering will, uh, most people from the Southwest, even if they did not vote for the person who was ultimately declared, will be careful uh, about being the excuse for not allowing someone from the Southwest to go on to rule, all right? So it was not going. It's, it was not going to be easy to do that. But in a state, it's not that difficult for the people to say no. We don't accept this. And in a state, for instance, like Kano, uh, which is really territorially, I believe Kano is the second or third smallest state in the north in in northern Nigeria. Although it is the dense, densest and the most populous by a vast country mile, Kano is twenty something odd square thousand square kilometers, uh, just a little over. Gombe and I think Sokoto states. I think after Gombe and Sokoto states, Kano is the third smallest state smallest, in yeah. terms of land landmass in north, northern land Nigeria. Sure. Yeah. Now, so and of course, Kano used to be one emirate until Ganduje tried to do what he did, right? Uh, but really, Kano is Kano emirate. All right. So there, there are, Kano does have, you know, a, a homogeneity to it. And and therefore, uh, it's not that difficult to mobilize people in Kano. It's not that, you know, Plateau may have issues, but still you can mobilize a majority, an overwhelming majority of Plateau people on these particular issues. Uh, and so when you can muster that kind of thing, it's difficult to think that judges are not going to listen because people can quite easily make the state totally ungovernable, even for soldiers. Now, you see, because we say, okay, we'll deploy soldiers and they can, but there is only a limit, there's a limit to how many sol people yeah. soldiers can kill without themselves exposing themselves to liability, right? So it is incumbent on judges and on politicians to make sure that they don't create liabilities for soldiers and for security agents to manage that are beyond the capacity, the installed capacity of those institutions. And that is why judges have to be careful about the kind of jurisprudence that they manufacture. And the, in these three situations I'm talking about, Plateau, Zamfara, Kano, judges, push, judges of the Court of Appeal or justices of the Court of Appeal quite clearly decided that they were going to push the country beyond the edge. That is not acceptable behavior. Great. So uh, another, I'm going to very bit back to end. States, you know, I'm sure you've read the Supreme Court judgment on the governor who clearly did not have an NYC certificate. The law is clear on that. The law is clear on forgery. The law is clear on having an NYC certificate and all that. How can the Supreme Court, how can, I mean, there were so many technicalities and issues, but personally, and I've spoken to a lot of people that are lawyers, 
we cannot fathom how the Supreme Court arrived at such conclusion. To us, I mean, I think it was supposed to be a slam dunk. Now, you have said that anybody that is a bandit, a rebel, anybody committing crime anywhere in Nigeria can have a reference point with the Supreme Court going forward, you know, because they validated a lot of illegality, you know. So my question is this, how do we navigate out of this? Because if our Supreme Court has failed and erred and have given, have validated things that are clearly unconstitutional, how do we get out of all this morass? There should be a way. I wish I could tell you I know the way. I don't, quite honestly. Um, I mean, I, I don't, I, if I tell you that, uh, I, I don't, I'm sure that even the Supreme Court sometimes is surprised by the kind of stuff they put out as jurisprudence, right? <laughs> um, and so, I, you know, who, who am I to try to understand or explain what leads them to some of the things that they come out with? So I really and honestly, I'm unable to explain some of the stuff that I read from them. Uh, and that, and that's really, and you see, this has consequences. And you know, these days we see lots of foreign investors pulling out of Nigeria. No foreign yeah. investor is going to invest in a country with the kind of judicial decision making that occurs in the country in Nigeria. None. You cannot. No, and no lawyer, no lawyer, with a clear conscience and decent skills can advise you on anything in Nigeria at the moment because nobody can tell you with any sense of predictability what the law is on any point at all that is relevant to your investment. And if you cannot govern your investment with any predictability, then why are you going into any country? Unless, of course, you are either into gambling or into lawlessness. It's it, it, That's really what it is. So those who are into predictable investment generally have, are fleeing the country. And this is partly a consequence, substantially a consequence of the failures of in our judicial system. And I tend to quarrel with a lot of my colleagues in the legal profession because although we see this, we say, please don't, you know, don't talk too much because you know we've got to preserve. There's absolutely nothing to preserve. The judges have completely and totally destroyed the rules of the game. There is no doctrine that explains the kinds of things our judges are doing. And so if you're teaching law in Nigeria, you cannot teach it with a straight face because you cannot answer the questions the, the, the students are going to ask you about what happens in the system and how the judge, you explain the kinds of things the judges are doing. So I, I'm sorry, I'm stumped in terms of responding to your exact question. I really I, can't I, I, I completely understand. You know, when you were talking about plateau states, you mentioned uh, Justice uh, Dongba Esam. I think Monica Dongba Esam is like, yeah, yeah, I got it right. Dongba Mensa. Now, Mensa. you said she's from Shen Shendam, right? Uh, yes. Governor Lalong also, I think, is from Shendam, correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So my question now is that, it's not really about plateau, but considering in the three million in Nigeria, do you think ethnicity and religion is what one of the things guiding all these decisions? I think so, yes. <laughs> wow. Now, I'll give you two examples, two very recent examples, right? Now, if you remember, in 2020, January oh. 13th of 2020, the Supreme Court decided that uh, toppled uh, Emeki Hedyohainimo state, right? And, oh. Oh. Uh, in, you know, invented Hopu Zodima as the governor of Imo state. The following month, Emeki uh, Hedyoha 
um, applied for the Supreme Court to review its judgment, and the Supreme Court considered a seven-person panel to uh, consider that. Of those seven justices, only one was from the Southeast. That was the late Justice Mweze. It just happens that Justice Mweze was also the only person who dissented. All the other justices who were not from the Southeast didn't see anything wrong with making a, a man who came forth in the election first. Mweze, who came from the Southeast and who understood the sentiments of the peoples of the Southeast, was the only person who said, no, this went too far in terms of judicial decision-making. Last year, you had the Lawan Mashina case, correct? Mm -hmm. That went up to the Supreme Court. And in the Supreme Court decision, it split four to three. Of the All of the three justices who uh, ruled against Lawan in that case came from the North. Of the three justices that came from the North, two of them came from the Northeast, which is exactly where Lawan came from. Why? Because they are the justices who are closest to the sentiments of the people in the Northeast, as far as I'm concerned. And they understood the score of that decision. At the end of the day, they need to be able to get home. And how are they going to get home if their people are saying, you are the people who have sold us out? So I have I've come to the very settled conclusion that tragically, we are now in an era in which the decisions uh, appellate courts reach are directly proportional to questions of ethnic origins. Uh, it was not always like this, I've got to say. This is recent. And it also happens to be occurring at the time when people are talking about unbundling the Supreme Court and decentralizing it uh, so that you have six regional Supreme Courts for each of the six geopolitical zones, which basically means what? That the quality of justice you get will be uh, calibrated to your ethnicity and your part of the country. And if you, know, if you want justice, you go to your part of the country and you get, so there'll be Yoruba justice. There'll be Igbo and Ikwere and uh, Efik justice uh, and Fulani justice and Hausa justice and Beram justice and Afizere justice and uh, uh, Shua Arab justice and Kanuri justice. And never those shall meet because depending on the part of the country where you come from, the color of justice will be different. That is basically where we are headed, and that is dangerous. Could we, could we also blame this on failure of leadership? Because my last guest was Professor Patutomi, and we're talking about ethnicity and polarization. And I, I asked him a question that, based on my own study, uh, I am starting to conclude that maybe the colonialists did not have to put us together because I, I gave him an example that using Zare as a focal point, I ruled an horizontal line from Cameroon all the way to West Africa. And I discovered everything above that line was Islamic. Everything beneath was Christianity, except, of course, the Yorubas of Bene and, uh, and Nigeria. That maybe if we are structured differently, people of Islamic origin in one place, we, maybe we chant on Nigerian. But it, his response is that it's failure of leadership, that these things are, that they don't really carry with in other parts of the world, that they are seeing minorities rule countries that they did very well. So my question really is, apart from ethnicity and religion, should, can we also blame it on the failure of leadership? Because of course he said, a, of course he said, a failure of leadership. Look, of course it's a failure of leadership. Said, Oh, wow. Because if according to, to he felt a president, yeah. sorry, sorry, just, uh, yeah, he said a president of Basso, for example, or a president Jonathan had the opportunity 
to have even given us a, a new constitution, but they, they thought more of their own personal uh, well-being than for the nation. So we both agree and we agree we need a new constitution. So my question is, you agree failure of leadership? We agree we need a constitution, the new people's constitution, driven by the people, not we the people, when we the people never wrote anything. How do we get to that rewriting or getting together for a new constitution? It doesn't look like we might never get the opportunity again at the rate at which we're going. What do you think, sir? I'm not one of the people invested in a new constitution. I've got to make that very clear. Uh, because in Nigeria, we don't, we have never, apart from 1979, where there was a constituent assembly. Um, we have never really been interested in making constitutions. We write them. And you see, so we get a yeah. bunch of lawyers and they write anything and that is it. Okay? Now, a constitution is a political settlement. Mm. Right? Which precedes the writing. The writing is only evidence of this of the settlement. But when you don't have a political settlement and you go to write anything, you end up with what you have in Nigeria. So, in the period since 1979, 45 years, we have not made any constitution. And that is our problem. So, the, what we need is not a new constitution. What we need is a Nigerian political settlement that in which the, all of the peoples that constitute Nigeria come together to say, this is actually what binds us together. And this is how we are going to work to preserve this thing that binds us together because it is important to all of us. And to do that, we want to have a country that we all own. Right now, nobody owns Nigeria. That is why when, whoever you send to the place wants to steal from it, wants to rob it, wants to destroy it. Buhari gets in, he appoints everybody from his village. Tinubu has now got in, he wants to appoint everybody from his village. Jonathan got in, he appointed everybody from his people. That is the problem. There is no central Nigerian identity that we all say this thing matters to us. Unless we have that political settlement that precedes anything that is written, we are going to continue to wallow in the challenge that we've got. And th that's the central problem that we've got. And that's why I say I, I, what we need is more than a new constitution. It is a political settlement that binds all of the people of Nigeria together. So when you fight or when you talk, you talk as a Nigerian, not as somebody who is smaller than a Nigerian. So, and, you know, it's possible to be Yoruba and Nigerian, Igbo and Nigerian, Afizera and Nigerian, African Nigerian, Bini and Nigerian, Ishan and Nigerian, Fulani and Nigerian. But at the moment, most people are one and not the Nigerian. The people who are Nigerian are people like you and I. You're in Atlanta, you're Nigerian. I, I'm in Sierra Leone, I'm in Nigeria. I'm Nigerian. Once we enter that airplane and head, start heading towards Nigeria, Nigeria goes, that Nigerian goes out and we become the default, which is our ethnic identity. And Yoruba so we, Exactly. <laughs> and then we get into that zero-sum mentality. Because when we meet outside the country, we all know one another and we perfectly support one another. And the divisions, those ethnic divisions fail because we realize that we belong to one another. And that is really, how do we transpond that or transpose that which happens outside, when we are outside the country into the country so that 
we begin to build rather than to denude the country. That actually is the challenge I see. And our leaders have not made that possible because they, they default to the cleavages in order to get to power. And therefore, when they get to power, they've got to sustain those cleavages rather than heal the country. I agree with you 100% on that. One of the things that baffled me during the last election, I'm Yoruba, clearly, was that I saw professors, you know, extremely educated people at the S level, people that were beneficiary of Aulowo's free education, you know, propagating gospel of, of somebody that fought certificate, that didn't have certificate. And some of them I knew as long as, long as I can remember. Who has said, even to me physically and in public, that if you are educated, if you lie, if you do this. So they were actually working across purpose. I find that very shocking, you know, especially from the Yoruba point of view, who value education so much. But my question to you is then, what do we arrive at that political settlement? We don't have too much time from the way I see it. We might oh, not God. be a failed state proper, but we are weak and we are collapsing. You know, it's a recipe for anarchy and disaster. So how do we arrive at that political settlement? No, we don't We don't have a lot of time. I totally agree with you, my brother. We don't at all. Mm. And, you know, we talk about all of these divisions and we forget, actually, for instance, that um, much of southern Nigeria is actually more united than historically and anthropologically. Yoruba and Igbo belong to the same linguistic family, right? And actually... Uh, there isn't a great deal different between the Jebu and the Igbo, just as a matter of the anthropology. But it, you go further. That you know, it's not just because I you know. Forget the the myths about Jebu and Igbo loving money too much. No, that's not what I'm saying, right? But <laughs> or being too much into enterprise. No, but you know, when you look at Yoruba language and you look at Igbo language, there's a great there are the vocabulary of the two languages share lots in common. You know, it is we have the same word, for instance, for kicking. Ba, you know, to ba, right? To kick. Uh, or ba, it's the same thing in Igbo. We have the same word for for stone, okuta and okute, right? Uh, and there are, uh, and you see, uh, the, you know, and actually when you go back into the mythologies of the communities, you see that, uh, for for instance, Onisha is the only community in Igbo land that has a, an, a settled stool. The Ubi of Onisha is a very settled stool. And the protocols and the traditions of the stool of Onisha are very strong. Where does it come from? The stool of Onisha comes from Benin, which comes from Odudua, correct? Yes, correct. Yeah. I mean, you can, you know, you can debate which one, you know, who Arami or Dudua and, you know, yeah, and, you know, the claims and counterclaims between the Bini and the Yoruba. But the fact is that uh, they, they they both claim a common heritage. And Onisha claims its heritage from Benin. And all of the Anyoma communities, the Igbo communities between Benin and Onisha claim the same heritage. And yet we will sit down here and we propagate hate. And then King Jaja of Opobo was where? Was an Igbo person. And Opobo is the Jok community, right? And so when we look at ourselves, you wonder how we manage to get ourselves into this situation of mutual antipathy to the point where educated people are training people to hate and kill one another. And how we 
overcome that ultimately is a challenge of leadership. I'm not talking of leadership now in terms of elected people. No, I'm talking of leadership as a challenge of enlightened mm-hmm. people. And and we've mm-hmm. got to intelligentsia. To, intelligentsia, exactly. We've got to continue to find a way to propagate that intelligentsia of enlightened people that will understand that a country that is built on mutual hate and mutual destruction and mutual annihilation, and particularly one as diverse as Nigeria, which is really the most diverse country in in Africa, by the way, is very, very dangerous. And the country is very dangerously poised at the moment. And we've got a, a duty to try and make sure things don't get worse than this. Amen. I, I say a little bit more to that. I, I have one question, one more question for you. And it just came to my head because a lot of things do baffle. I talk to a lot of people too. And one of the things that baffle me, I'm Yoruba fan. One of the things that baffle me when I read the history of Nigeria, and I, I think, I'm not sure if you can answer it, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Why do you think Almighty Zeke, Nandia Zikwe, Almighty Obafebi Aolo, could not get a common ground, you know, work together? I mean, I understand maybe pre and immediately post-independent, there were a little bit of rivalry and there. But by the time we got to 79 and 83, I felt, you know, that they were older men. They could have, you know, I don't know. Do you think, can you answer that? Can you help us not, answer not, that? In the time, not in the time that we've got left, unfortunately, because that's a yes, profoundly long conversation and you've got to go into yeah. details of some of the things that transpired. Yeah, I know. But the one thing I can also say, whatever mm-hmm. anyone may think, those men respected one another. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, that is uh, Shagari, Balewa, Zeke, and uh, uh, and Awolo all respected one another. And, uh, you know, if, you know, I, and I don't think we always have credited them with the kind of uh, uh, plaudits that they deserve. Uh, but so, if you, you know, and particularly, particularly Shehu Shagari, particularly mm. Shehu Shagari, I don't think Shehu Shagari has got what he deserves in Nigerian history because Shagari actually set out to, is the leader in my view, who set out perhaps more than any person to try to heal that country, to bring that country together. Shagari gave, awarded Awolowo the GCFR. Awolowo is the only person who has never held the presidency of Nigeria who is GCFR. Because Shagari respected Awolowo a heck of a lot. They worked together in the federal cabinet. Shagari was the person who pardoned uh, Aziki, uh, sorry, uh, 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 he pardoned Michael Obara, he pardoned Gowon. He brought them into the mainstream of Nigeria. Basically, he sought to heal the 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 the, the, the cleavages from the civil war and from that mad 10 years between 1966 and 1976 when the country liquidated some of its best people in the war and then in the coups and counter-coups that followed, right? Uh, and the you know, people can only remember austerity and Omaru Diko, but nobody actually can say Shigari was a corrupt man. Uh, uh, and the effort he made to bind that country together, I think, deserves to be celebrated. And whether we can produce any other leader who understands that uh, and who can walk that trajectory again, because if we can, if we can, what you will free up will be the most fundam- most constructive energies possibly in the human race outside 
perhaps India and China. And we'll be able to transform the Nigerian landscape into something the world will marvel at. But we need a country that can hold out a promise of holding its people together and healing all of them and binding the woods of its past. Thank you very much, Prof, for your time. We've been talking about uh, the state of the Nigerian judiciary is clearly in the most appalling situation. We are not proud of it. I'm sure they're in the heart of heart. The justice, whether Supreme, Appeal Court or wherever, are not proud of it themselves. You know, they're making it difficult for law school students to get there, to even make reference to what has been done. Now, most importantly, we have also discussed why we've lost almost every semblance of patriotic level at governance, all our leaders, just lack what it is to be patriotic. It's all turn by turn, Nigeria limited. Everything is ethnic, religious, based, and all that. Well, we have agreed today that we do not have too much time left. We don't know when, we don't know how, but we know that no nation goes, follows this trajectory and have a good story to tell at the end of the day. History is replete with such. So, Prof, thank you for coming to Atlanta Discuss. Thank you for giving us time amongst your, I mean, your very, very busy schedule. We will always call again when the need arises. And to our viewers all over the world, we say thank you for your loyalty. Next week, we'll come back to you with another very, very hot and something that will interest you. Thank you once again. It's the wrap today. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Thanks a lot, Ade. Enjoy the thank week. Thank you, sir. Yes, you too, sir.